Now to be able to uh, tell you where I got my children's story from today, Walter Pearson, who at one time was the uh, director of the LNG White Estate and also for a while speaker director for Breath is Life. As a matter of fact, he took over for C.D. Brooks. He's the one that told the fish story and he uses it in illustration of why we are to pray without ceasing, why are we are to pray all the time. And he starts with telling about the eagle who flies at a mile, maybe two miles high, looks down into the river, he can see the fish that he wants. But when he starts his dive, he of course cannot dive where the fish is. He must dive where the fish is going to be. And thus he says, so it is with God. We send up our petition for a blessing. God lets it go, but he can't let it go where you are. He has to let it go to where you are going to be. Amen? There, see? He knows. We send up our prayer and through impatience or whatever else, we don't believe we're getting our blessing, so what do we do? We stop swimming, we stop praying. And when, the, when we as the fish, when we stop swimming our blessing, then we wonder uh, how a fish always ends up with our blessing. Pray without ceasing. See, if you had joined us in prayer meeting, a couple meetings in all, just a couple meetings in, okay? And you showed up and we began reading these verses that Paul says to the church. He says this, he says, you crazy Galatians, did someone put a hex on you? Have you taken leave of your senses? Something crazy has happened for it's obvious that you no longer have the crucified Jesus in clear focus in your lives. His sacrifice on the cross was certainly set before you clearly enough, clearly enough but are you so foolish that you've began with the spirit that now you're ending with the flesh? Can you imagine being a church and getting this letter from the apostle that planted you? Being told that you're no longer really a believer in Jesus because of what you've done. So we gotta be thinking, well, what, did they, what have they done to end in the flesh? What sin have they committed in the flesh that he would use this kind of language with them? Are they committing adultery? Are they condoning it? Are they dancing? No, they've become circumcised and they're keeping Sabbath days and feast days. Oh no, who told them they could do that? The Bible told them so. Clearly, the Bible told them so. Wait, what? So they're doing what the Bible says to do and Paul's still using this language with them? But Paul's abbreviated recounting of the saving ministry of Jesus is two words, Christ crucified. Perfect tense, accomplished fact with present results, having been crucified. For Paul, the gospel of Christ crucified so completely rules out any other supposed means of being righteous before God that he finds it utterly incomprehensible for anyone who had once embraced such a gospel ever to think of supplementing it in any way. The letter of the law as a standard of righteousness 
can no longer be considered whatsoever for a person of faith in the saving and sanctifying life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Galatians recognized neither their depth of human weakness nor the meaning of Christ's sacrifice. What had begun such a promising relationship with God in the Holy Spirit, they're trying to complete in the flesh. Later, he'll show them what they are to truly look like when they continue in faith in the Spirit. They'll be loving. How loving? How often? Mm -hmm. They'll be loving. They'll be joyful. How joyful? How often? They'll be at complete peace. Complete peace with God. Complete peace with each other. They'll be patient. (laughs) Patient. They'll be gentle. And they'll have self-control. If you've ever wondered if we were these things, then maybe other doctrine by which we live that we're trying to uh, reach people with, that maybe no one else would have an issue with it if we were those things. We could teach them whatever we wanted. It's a whole lot easier to keep from eating cheese or swimming on the Sabbath than to love my neighbor as myself and forgive even those who trespass against me. George Knight points out in his Bible Amplifier uh, book on Galatians, he says, what we need to realize is the more sinister enemies of the faith are not always the obvious irreligious practices of the world, but often the potent forces of morality and religion that operate in the church. In fact, the sin of goodness is probably more destructive of true Christianity than those evil acts that we usually regard as sin. Why? Well, a person who does an evil thing may feel the need to repent. Why? Because it was evil. But those in the church that commit the little vegetarian sins assume they're just better than everyone else. I thank you, O Lord, I'm not like that tax collector over there. Paul is saying here there's no more deadly a sin than adding good actions to God's saving grace because they nullify the grace of God. Our nature and our reasons for joining a church or becoming followers of Jesus, we've so corrupted the motives for doing good works that Paul says you can't separate them anymore. You have to begin with faith. You have to begin with love. You have to begin with knowing exactly who we are before we ask God ever for a blessing. So knowing this, we tune our ears of faith again today. We turn on our outside voices. We're getting ready to listen to a parable, are we not? Jesus' outside voice, the parable is are for those who seem to be outside of his followers, outside of his disciples, outside of his church. He wants it so clear that they understand. Why? So they'll want in. So they'll want to follow him. So they'll want to become our fellow disciples. How many want that to happen? 
Of course we want it to happen. So we tune our ears to a parable coming and it comes to an action that we as Christians have all agreed, every Christian is all agreed that it is the most important work. It may be the only work we're told and that is prayer. And what are we told about prayer? What are we told we're supposed to do? See that none of you repays evil for evil. That's a good policy right there. But always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always and pray without what? And pray without ceasing. Prayer. Not just praying, but praying without what? Without ceasing. So if Jesus had a parable about this, we should pay attention, shouldn't we? to the outside voice. Because he does have a parable about this. But I have to tell you, in the tradition of Luke and his relaying of parables, it's not a very eloquent argument for praying without ceasing. You're not gonna like it. I didn't like it. Reading this 2,000 years later, uh, trying to understand what those people on the outside heard that day, and that's what we've been trying to do, haven't we? We've been trying to put on our outside voice. What would somebody in the first century who was outside of, of, of Jesus' circle, outside of those 12 disciples, what did they hear when they heard this parable? If you don't turn on our outside voice, <laughs> you're not gonna like this parable, especially as a I guess, a uh, tutoring in how to pray without ceasing. Begins this way, it's found in Luke 18, verse one. Jesus told them a parable about their what? About their need to pray always and to not what? Not lose heart. That Greek word, not lose heart, is only used six times in the entire Bible, in the entire New Testament. And it didn't quite get translated that way in our scripture reading, but our scripture reading, 2 Corinthians 4.1 says, since we've been given this ministry, and the ministry was all about doing God's work, all about coming face to face with God, not, not like the old covenant, not like a veil had to be thrown on, on Moses' face, but entering into that full revelation of Christ. It says we do this so that King James said, so that we don't grow faint. That's the word right there, that we don't lose heart. According to the six times that that word is used, there are only two things that you can lose heart while doing. One is praying, the other is doing good things. We're exhorted by the apostles when they use this word to continue doing good things and don't lose heart. And here, we're only exhorted one time to pray and not lose heart. It's in Jesus' parable. Luke will bring, like I said, his version of this. And again, uh, it isn't the most eloquent reasons to pray. It isn't the most eloquent, I guess, uh, case to be made for, for, uh, for praying without losing heart. But one thing to notice before we even start, since it begins this way, is he giving us the opportunity, or is he giving us the opportunity at least to understand, okay, that if we can pray without ceasing, that there is a possibility that praying without ceasing may lead to what? May lead to us losing heart. Right? He wouldn't say it if it wasn't going to happen. 
It's not guaranteed that it'll happen, but he says, he told them a parable about their what? About their need to pray. How often? Always, and to what? He's giving you, he's telling us right off the bat that we're living in a place, we're living in a kingdom that even praying unceasingly, that we never cease, may actually lead to us what? May actually lead to us losing heart. So this parable is supposed to be how to do that and not what? And not lose heart. So, get ready because, again, you're not gonna like this parable. Not, not with these ears. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for who? What a great quality for a judge, right? An unnamed city, an unnamed judge, all we know is that he doesn't fear God, he has no respect for people. Now, he doesn't sound necessarily evil. He may or may not be corrupt, we don't know. It isn't say that he's taking bribes or anything like this, but he certainly, uh, at least off the bat, out of the gate, he's not the hero for justice looking out for those marginalized and those keeping pets. He isn't a hero for justice, is he? Why? Because he's got no respect for who? He has no respect for the people who come to him for what? For justice. And he has no moral center. He doesn't fear the only one who can give him a moral center. He doesn't fear God. So he's got no moral center. He has no respect for people. In fact, Jesus only has one word for him. A little later in the parable, the Lord said, listen to what the what? What the unjust judge says. That word right there, unjust. Uh, Dikaios is, is the Greek word for, for right or righteousness or righteous, okay? But you put A in front of a Greek word and you've got what? Without. So even, even a shred of being right, a shred of, of, of uh, being concerned about making things right or being right or having righteousness, he says this guy has got none. Without. Anoxia means you are without oxygen. You're not going to live very long. Apathy means you're without pathos. You're without feeling. This guy is without righteousness. He has none. Man. The unjust judge. In that city, there was also a what? A widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. Is she asking him for what she should be asking him for? Yes, he's the judge. He's the one that does this. So she's coming to ask him. Now, there's an immediate reaction. You all had this immediate reaction to hearing that she's a widow. Most of us picture widow in the Bible, and what do we picture? Someone poor, right? Weakened by grief marginalized by the law, cast out, if you will, downtrodden, taken advantage of. But let me ask you this. Is that an informed reaction? It isn't at all, is it? Okay. But we have that reaction for, uh, for a bunch of reasons. But I, for me let, me, let me just share with you uh, that I never realized it, but it was pointed out to me that we have that reaction because we automatically want to root for her. 
Because the first guy we've been introduced to is nobody to root for, right? We don't want this guy. He's without what? He's without righteousness. He's without a moral center. He does not care about God nor men. And he's in a position where he's supposed to. We automatically want to root for him. So what do we do? We make the widow what? Downtrodden. We make her the underdog. We want to root for her. We want her to win against this unrighteous judge. But to assume that she's poor and marginalized and trod upon isn't very informed if we're Bible students, right? Because this isn't the picture that the Bible gives us of all widows. Amy Jill Levine, I've quoted before in her book, The Stories Jesus Told, she says this, biblical widows are the most unconventional of conventional figures. Expected to be weak, they move mountains. Expected to be poor, they prove savvy managers. Expected to be exploited, they take advantage where they find it. Tamar, the, world, the Bible's first official widow, Genesis 38. Naomi and Ruth and Orpah. Abigail, 1 Samuel 27 and 30. 2 Samuel 2, 2 Samuel 3. The wise woman of Tekoa, 2 Samuel 14. The widow of Zarephath, 1 Kings 2, uh, uh, 17. They expect to be exploited and taken advantage of. So they end up doing and advancing the divine plan. They end up doing it with what is given them. Every one of them. And they come out on top. Our widow here is purposefully left undescribed, I believe. It's because we're supposed to come to a conclusion about her. And I'm just saying that if we with 21st century ears and inside voices assume that she's poor and marginalized, then we may not be listening to the same parable. We may not be listening with the outside ears because I don't believe anybody in the first century automatically assumed that about this woman. They may have seen exactly what every other widow is almost described in, in in, in scripture. She's left purposely undescribed. All we know is that she has an opponent that she wants justice from. She's demanding justice from this opponent. Notice, we're not even told the opponent's complaint. We're not even told anything about it. We have no information as to whether or not her cry for justice is right, do we? We have none. Most translations have the widow seeking justice. Grant me justice against my opponent. As a matter of fact, if you look at the headings on some of your Bibles, it would say, Okay, it would say the opportune, um, the inopportune widow and the unjust judge. Okay, but what she's demanding is, is it, it says justice, but I'm just saying that even the translators are trying to kind of uh, make this woman maybe a little softer than what she actually is. Because the Greek term used here is not the term justice, it's actually the word for vengeance. She's not asking for justice. She's asking for vengeance. Now, that word could be positive, okay? But only it can be positive is if you know the case. 
You see what I'm saying? It can only be positive to want vengeance if we know what has been done to her. And we have no idea what's been done to her. So at best, it's, it's morally neutral. At worst, she wants vengeance. So her actions don't necessarily make her the poor, downtrodden underdog we would like her to be. And I think Jesus did this on purpose. It's possible she's demanding vengeance. She's not so weak now, is she? And we're told she does it how often? Did she come once and then go home after getting nothing from the judge? No, she keeps coming back. So the judge, it says for a while he what? He refused, but later he says to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, that cracks me up. The judge has an inner monologue. As a matter of fact, this is the only thing that you hear. The judge doesn't even tell the woman, doesn't even talk to the woman, he talks to himself. And listen to what he says about himself. This inner monologue is that even he's convicted of his own unrighteousness. He's not right and he is proud of it. Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps what? Keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually what? Coming. She's not putting up with this garbage. She's gonna make him do his job. He's blown her off, hasn't he? He's, she's gonna make him do his job. So note these, these words here. Because this widow keeps bothering me, or that she may wear me out by continually coming. Again, uh, the Greek does not do this. The translation, the English does not do this justice because the Greek word used here about wearing out is actually a boxing term. The Greek word actually means to strike one upon the parts beneath the eye to beat it black and blue. If I don't do what this lady wants, she's gonna show up and beat the snot out of me. He's actually concerned that this little widow is going to give him a black eye. I don't know about you, but I am now convinced that this is not a little downtrodden underdog. This is somebody more like Tamar and Ruth and Abigail. This lady knows how to get stuff done. So the judge is going to actually do his job because of a sense, not because of a sense of moral justice, not because the widow is being trodden upon, not apparently based on any evidence, <laughs> only because this widow is annoyingly persistent and actually just might give him a black eye, just might actually come and beat him up. That is the only reason he's going to give her justice. I told you I wasn't gonna like it. See, because what are we all looking for right now? We're all looking for right now what we found in all other parables. That is, we're looking for God and we're looking for someone else, aren't we? We're looking for God and we're looking for the bad guy. We're looking for good and we're looking for evil and neither one of these characters are particularly good or evil. None of them. 
In fact, both of them might be a bit unlikable. See, if you can't take sides, which is what we want, then how can there be a a moral? How can there be a lesson? What am I supposed to learn then? Remember we talked a couple weeks ago about our natural reaction to try to tame the parables? (laughs) To try to, to smooth them out? Luke has no compunction for us to smooth these out. They're designed to get our attention. They're designed to make us think. Where's the closure then? Because these two certainly don't give it to us. Right? All we're told is that it's her persistence that does it. It's a threat that does it. No evidence, no nothing. And the unrighteous judge is willing to give her vengeance. Justice. There's nobody to like here. Is Jesus going to give us closure? Jesus says, listen to what the unjust says, unjust judge says. And will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? They pray without what? Without ceasing. Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet when the son of man comes, will he find what? Will he find faith on the earth? This is what the parable was supposed to teach us about persistent prayer without losing heart. God is going to do it if we annoy him. God is going to do it because we may threaten him. See, all the other parables, we find a character that we can identify as God. The laborers, us, versus the vineyard owner. The lost sons, us, versus the father. We don't find that in this parable. Neither characters come close to the character we know God to be in Jesus. Amen? Not even close. It would do God's character harm if we tried to assign God to one of these guys and gal. See, I said guys. It's a guy and a gal. Because that's not what this parable is designed to do. It's not what this parable teaches. Remember I shared with you last week, and I know this because of one phrase, one little phrase right here. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God. So we know what the unjust judge has done. We know the reasons why he's done it. They're not righteous reasons. They're not moral reasons. But he's delivered justice, hasn't he? If this guy can do this, then will not God. I told you I'd talk to you about this this week. I told you I'd talk to you about a framework that Jesus as a rabbi operated in that I have no, no problem applying to this parable because I believe this is how Jesus thought. It's the, it's the framework um, or argument or debate or Bible study of Calva Homer, the argument from the least to the greatest. The argument from the least to the greatest. This judge does this, the least, and what will God do? If this judge does this, then what can God do? Argument from the least to the greatest. 
There are tons of examples. Jesus uses it all the time. But I'm gonna take two of these examples, just two of them, because they're both found in Matthew, and they both have uh, something to do with teachings about prayer, because that's what this parable was supposed to be about, to teach us to pray without what? Without losing heart, okay? So look at this. In in Matthew 10, we're told this. Matthew 10, he, he has... He has sent his disciples out. I mean, uh, I'm I'm sorry, Matthew 7. We'll start with Matthew Matthew 7 and talking about prayer. He says, ask it will be given to you. Uh, Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. If everyone who asks, what? Receives. And everyone who searches, finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. Is there anyone among you If your child asks for bread, we'll give a stone. Or if the child asks for a fish, we'll give a what? We'll give a snake. If you then, who are evil, okay, us, as human parents, we are the what? Evil. We're the least. If you, being evil, the least, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more... Will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Argument from the least to what? To the greatest. We note that it perfectly frames prayer too. We don't talk about this when we're talking about uh, do we get what we ask for simply because we ask for it? But it isn't about getting what we want. That isn't the debate when it comes to prayer. It doesn't even uh, uh, come close to being the debate. Notice the child isn't asking for anything that seems to be selfish or extravagant. He's asking for bread and he's asking for fish. What's he asking for? He's asking for things that he needs. He says if you know uh, your child and love your child, you're the one that can determine what is good. You can give good gifts. Why? How can we be trusted with that? We can be trusted if we love our children. We can give them good gifts. How much more then can the Father in heaven, one who we by faith know loves us and is willing to give all that is good simply because we are his? We're asked to believe that. Our parable is about being persistent in prayer without losing heart. So it can't be based on whether or not we're getting what we want or deserve or, that, uh, or in a timely manner that we define. Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And then he immediately turns to living in the end times. Immediately turns to what it's going to be like for everybody from here on out. I don't want you losing heart. And one of the ways that we can lose heart is that we don't feel we're getting what we've asked for. But it's the Father that determines what's good. A more vivid example is a little later in chapter 10. He says, uh, chapter 10 begins with him sending out the disciples for the very first time to evangelize the communities around them. He equips them with the gospel, the power to preach. He even gives them some powers to heal, to cast out demons. I mean, they are ready. They are armed. They go and they do all this. And then he says this, go and do this. Do this for everybody that you encounter. 
and then let them decide. He walks away, he says, let them decide. For anybody who doesn't accept your word, I'll take care of it. It'll be better to be in Sodom and Gomorrah than, than it would be to be in those cities. And by the way, that's, that's scary, scary, because the cities they're going to are all in Judah. These are all people who claim to believe already. But then he tells them what's coming. Beware of them, for they will what? They will hand you over to councils and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them and the Gentiles. When they hand you over, don't worry about what you're to speak, what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you at that time, for it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you'll be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be what? Wait, whoa, Jesus, hold on a second. This is what happens to people who are just looking to spread the gospel? It gets worse for some. Do not fear those who what? who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Whoa, wait a minute, martyrdom? So you're saying that even if we can pray without ceasing, we may end up being martyrs. What's the answer to that? Yep. But what is it that he wants us to remember if that's the case? Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted and numbered. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. See, this kingdom chews people up and spits them out. People die every day for nothing. For nothing because of selfishness and motives beyond what we can imagine, beyond what our nature has done, in church, out church, it doesn't matter. Pray without ceasing. It may not keep you from harm, but it does let you know that you are cared for. He said, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. Don't take them out of the world to protect them. Leave them in the world. Just let them know that I'm with them. Let's walk with them through this. See, if justice can be delivered by an unjust judge for the wrong reasons, unrighteous motives, annoyance, ego, threats of violence, just to get vengeance, the many reasons we humans find to get through these lives, if these two very unlikable characters can do it, then he says, I tell you what? Right? Dang it. That's what we were doing last week. Okay, I'm not going to mess with it. I'm going over. <laughs> I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will not God, 
If this unjust judge, that's what I was doing, I was going the wrong direction, I'm sorry. If this unjust judge can do what he does for the wrong reasons and the wrong motives, then how much more will God deliver his justice? But we have to understand, it isn't in our definition of quick, and it isn't in our definition of good. If we're approaching prayer that way, then the more that we pray and the more that it doesn't happen, then what happens? We'll end up what? We'll end up losing heart. Will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? If it can be done by the least, if you being evil, it can be done by the best. He defines what's right. He defines what quickly is. See, our natures have ruined good things like prayer. Why? Because we've ruined our motives. We've ruined good things. We've ruined good works. We don't need to scramble and assign God to either of these characters in the parable because he's neither. The two characters in the parable are us and our misconstrued motives of justice and why we do good things. Our persistence in prayer is not a selfish strategy to get what we want. Our persistence in prayer is the daily relationship that he has always desired to have with us. God doesn't deliver justice because we annoyed him or we threatened him. He delivers it, he answers prayer simply because he loves us. And by the way, he loved us long before we ever got the compunction to hit our knees and say a prayer. Our kids might be able to annoy us into giving them what they want, but we gotta stop teaching that that's what God does if we annoy him. That unjust judge isn't God, and the widow isn't us. They're both us. See, in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm sorry I had to take you back and then forward again. The Sermon on the Mount, it's... He concludes the Beatitudes section by saying this, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your what? Your good works and give glory to who? And give glory to your Father in heaven. Would you include prayer in this? Sure. Prayer's a good work, isn't it? Uh, in matter of fact, we're, we're told by the prophet that it isn't a work, it's the work, right? We don't pray to prepare for the work. Prayer is the work, right? Yeah, so we include prayer in these good things. And of all the things that we conclude about prayer, ceasing and not in order to lose heart, are we given the fundamental motives for doing so? Or should I say not doing so? We're told exactly the reasons we shouldn't pray. That's what Jesus says. Whenever you pray, do not what? Don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that, people, so that they may be seen by other people. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward. You don't do it in order to look good for somebody else. You don't do it in order to look spiritual for someone else. If you're doing it for that reason, Jesus says, congratulations, you got your reward. Good job. But whenever you pray, go where? Into your room. Shut the door. 
Pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. If we're doing it to look good, it's a selfish motive. The reward is up to him if it happens in secret. If the prayer happens in secret, then the reward happens in secret. So you don't do it in order to look good in front of somebody else. What's the other reason you don't do it? When you're praying, do not what? Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. The right words, formula, or even many words. Constant, many. How do, who does that sound like? Constantly coming back. Constantly annoying. Who does that sound like? He said, don't even do that. Because the Gentiles, the pagans, if you will, they think that God will give in to them. It's the same reason that they give in to their kids if their kids are annoying them. Don't do it to find favor with God is the other reason not to do it. Why? Because you've already got favor with God. You don't go into your prayer closet to find favor with God. You already have his favor. Would that change our attitude in praying? Especially if we're to pray without ceasing. Again, he loved us before we even got the first notion ever to pray. The kingdom, this kingdom, seems to provide for prayer, but actually they provide no reward for prayer. Wealth, health, appearance of piety, being right, those are no indicators that God is present with any of us if we have any of those. Can we be rich and still have the presence of God? Yes. Can we be rich and not have the presence of God? Yes. Can we be healthy and not have the presence of God? Yes. Can we be healthy and, not, and still have the presence of God? I don't even know what I said the first time, but you guys got it. That parable reminds us of that. Pray that we don't lose heart because here it's so easy to happen. This is when the conclusion is 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. And then later in verse 16, he'll say, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, Yet our inner man is being renewed, what? Day by day. Everything is going to be eroding our prayer life. It's going to be eroding our purpose for prayer. It's going to erode into the time that we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Why? Because we're not listening to the parable with outside ears. We forget who we are. That our reward is not here. Doesn't mean you can't get some rewards from here, but it's, that's not what we're here for, is it? And the only reason that any, any martyr can ever truly become a martyr or truly experience persecution for persecution's sake is one who is born again and one who knows exactly who he is and who his father is and how his father feels about him. This parable says if the worst of you can do it for the wrong reasons. How much more do you think I'll be able to do for you? And oh, by the way, 
You may not feel this reward. You may not have this reward experience until I come. Right now, the martyrs are all under the altar saying, how long, O Lord? They didn't receive the reward, did they? That's not what they would say. They would say that is the reward. Pray constantly. Because if nothing else, if nothing else, at least what's happening when we're praying constantly is we're with him. And maybe that was the whole reason for asking this. Philip Yancey shared a story once about his church. His church used to do a ministry for a date night. The youth and the young adults, they would provide childcare so that couples could go and have a date night. So they drop off their kids, they go have their date night, and they come pick up the kids. Well, the youth pastor and his wife decided to take advantage of it, and they left their three-year-old son with them. And they come back to pick him up, and uh, the leader, the young adult leader says, excuse me, pastor, I wanna tell you a story. We played a game tonight with all the children. What we asked all the children was, what is your parents' favorite thing to do? What do you think your parents' favorite thing to do is? I wanna tell you what your son said, three years old. He said, my mom and dad's favorite thing to do is to clean me up. Why? Because of course they love what they're doing because they're doing it all the time. And then the pastor closed the story by saying this. It really isn't our favorite thing to do. Cleaning him up can be a chore. And it's constant. He said, but I will tell you this. It's a pretty darn good excuse to hold him. Pray without ceasing. Because if nothing else, at least we're with them. But we don't lose heart. We encourage each other, we receive, we remind each other of what God tells us, and we look for ways to hear a parable like this through the outside boys. Thank you all for hanging in with me.